Hi, I'm Kriti Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? I'm a writer, journalist and poet and I love to find out about what interests people are pursuing, especially if they're blending together these different skills in different ways. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone I find particularly interesting and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not necessarily think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Emily Prasico, a philosopher, climate change specialist and a mother. I started by asking her to explain what life as a modern day philosopher is actually like. Emily, we've known each other for over two decades. You're a polymath. You can talk in multiple languages and you're the first philosopher I've ever met. But how did you decide to pursue that path and how does this deep thinking affect everything that you do? We have known each other for a long time and I've been drawn to philosophy for even longer. I have older sisters and we grew up in France. And in France, everyone has to study philosophy for our baccalaureate, the equivalent of A-levels. And so my eldest sister, who is 10 years older than me, was studying for A-levels or her baccalaureate uh, when I was about seven or eight, reading Plato. I remember very distinctly that it's Plato that I stumbled upon first, almost like a caricature. Well, I remember not understanding it, but thinking that I really wanted to understand what all that meant. And so from there, I sort of explored. It was a time, the 90s, where I think a few books came out that were geared towards teenagers on philosophy, at least I remember um, those books. And then it was my time to study for the baccalaureate. And I loved philosophy. It was everything I ever wanted it to be. So that was how I discovered the discipline itself, the academic discipline. I wonder if there's something other than the academic discipline itself that is part of my journey to philosophy, which is, if you ask my family, I think they would tell you that I was always asking questions. There were never enough answers. Now that I've taught philosophy, I see why how that is a philosophical trait. Whenever I've taught philosophy and students thought they had an answer, I had another question for them and they would have an answer and I would have another question for them. And so perhaps there's something in the way that we do philosophy that was part of my personality from an early age, which is that always questioning, always seeking a negative way of putting it to some might be never being satisfied (laughs) and always wanting to understand more to have more clarity this answer won't do because it's raising other questions but that's perhaps a, a bit of a negative twist on it if I go back way way back to sort of childhood and adolescence and really once I started studying philosophy reading philosophy there was nothing else I even considered studying why would you not want to read the greatest thinkers in the world I mean that obviously I completely understand that that statement is completely subjective but to me I had found an almost infinite source of absolute brilliance that I could just read and you know read in a context where I was encouraged to do so non-stop and only that that was at uni where we met then in grad school where I was even Modestly, but nonetheless paid to do that. Paid to think. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And then I, you know, decided to pursue a PhD because I met some amazing professors, but also because I thought, when else in the world will I be given the opportunity to think about whatever I want in whatever way I want to 
and to go you know as deep into a topic as I can in a PhD and that's proven true I mean I've been employed since then and so you know having employers is a great thing but not one that gives you ample time to explore any topic you wish in any way that you wish so that's sort of the the journey but can I interrupt for one second how do you make sure that you're not an overthinker as someone who thinks a lot (laughs) now if I had the answer to that question that would be great you learn you learn that overthinking isn't always helpful, useful, necessary, appropriate. You learn by experience. That was my, at least what, what I can share. On a personal level, overthinking just makes for a life that's very cut off from others because you're stuck in your interpretations of things. You're stuck in your fears, your hopes. And one thing I learned, and perhaps compared to others perhaps late I don't know is that through dialogue through communication you can dispel fears you can build new hopes you can learn from others and so your life is a little bit more connected and a little bit more rooted so that's on a personal level professionally you just don't have time to overthink and so in my career I transitioned from an academic path to I'm now a consultant I've been a consultant in many different ways sometimes with more sort of not in more non-profit world and now I'm in very much a for-profit world but there's always a deadline and there's always a client overthinking won't really help you deliver to use a word that consultants love to use but yeah we do Uh, but what, what it means is you're not really if you try and get away from the sort of consultant language what you're doing is not having much empathy for your client who, you know, if you think about responding to a client need with empathy, well, you've got to get out of your own head. And so you've got to stop thinking. And so that's how I approach it more than I'm a consultant I have to deliver, but rather there's a client, they have a need and I have to meet that need. I have to help them meet that need. And so I have to be able to put myself in their shoes. So it doesn't help to overthink as a consultant. It doesn't help to overthink in at least my personal life. And I see it with younger colleagues who are doing similar transitions from academia to consulting. I wouldn't call it overthinking, but I would call it not necessarily thinking with empathy, not thinking with your client in mind, not thinking with your audience in mind. And that's really interesting to see. I mean, they're great thinkers in other respects, bright, deep thinkers, but that thinking with empathy uh, has to be learned, at least in my experience for academics. Now, I'm just going to put a plug. You've written several books. Is this going to be the next book about thinking with empathy? I hadn't thought of that, but <laughs> could be. I wouldn't rule it out because I do think that it's something I've had to learn and that's really paid dividends, not to use consultant speaking again, but really paid dividends in, yeah, I think it's made me a better, well, consultant, but just a better problem solver and you know being more connected to the issues I'm trying to solve. Fantastic and I'm going to use this to sort of move on to another topic that I really wanted to ask you about. You weren't just the first modern day philosopher that I'd come across but also when it comes to climate and climate change you have been quite ahead of the game when it comes to immersing yourself in it in terms of trying to make change to climate change. How did you come across the subject in the first place but then also decide to take action because you've been in it for way over a decade you know a lot of oh, people yeah. talk about it now it seeps into everything which so it should but I remember us 
having these conversations and you're like, you know, this is the path that I'm pursuing. How did you get into it so early? And what are you doing now? Because you you are at the vanguard. Possibly, although I hope that doesn't make me sound really old, but possibly. <laughs> I don't really remember that in my late teens or early 20s, I had much of a climate conscience, let's say. Not particularly. I mean, we rode our bikes at uni. Well, I did. Most people did. I fell off the bikes. It. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's about it. So it was through research. It was through well, a convergence or a confluence of a few things. It was through philosophy that I structured that awareness about climate change. And let me explain. So in my dissertation, I looked at the role of science in political and specifically democratic decision-making. And I looked at it from, I would say, a critical point of view that was founded on the theory of Jürgen Habermas. And his understanding of political deliberation and the different kinds of claims that we make in democratic deliberation with a view to democratic decision making. The main idea of mine or that I discovered as I was thinking about Habermas and science and democracy was that often we used science to obfuscate other topics or to hide that we were actually talking about topics of justice topics of morality. And so this was early to mid 2000s. And so if you looked at the state of the climate debate then, it really was mostly a technical debate. I think Al Gore's first film came out in 2008. And I don't know if you remember it, it was full of graphs. I, that's all, I mean, I pretty much remember the graphs and the, the recommendation to change the light bulbs uh, is what I remember. So very scientific, right? Um, technical. I think most of the debate was sort of in similar terms. And not just technical, let me just make this precision. Also technical on one side, and then the other hand was, and here's what you, individual, can do. Change your light bulbs, stop using plastic bags. Not much of a connect between a graph that shows you you know, variations in CO2 emissions over decades and centuries and your light bulbs. So first of all, wasn't to me, wasn't very compelling. But second of all, through these theoretical tools I developed, thanks to Habermas, I could see that, okay, well, actually what we're talking about is a question of resource distribution, a question of fairness, a question of responsibility at a collective level, at a transnational level, through different historical periods. And these are things that if, you know, I obviously read a lot of political philosophy, these are really sort of some core topics that we study in political philosophy. And so to me, it just suddenly became clear that climate change was such a deeply political question about justice, about fairness, about what we owe to each other as individuals, as parts of groups, as parts of countries. And yet that's not at all how it was talked about. And so that's how I came to it. That's how I started caring about climate change, because I cared about justice, because I cared about making sure that those who wanted to carry that voice of a climate injustice had been leveled against them, that we could hear them. And for that, you had to clear the space for that debate, for that discourse. And so that's what I wanted to do. And then I thought, well, do I want to work for government? It didn't really seem to be part of the solution then. And just not a fit with 
I think, my personality. And I thought, well, the private sector, if we're talking about resource distribution, owns a lot, uses a lot, wastes a lot. And I thought, and they have been untapped so far in terms of their potential for positive impact or potential for transformation of the systems that extract, use, and sometimes waste resources. And so I wanted to connect this philosophical revelation I'd had with something a bit more practical and going to work with some actors that had untapped power. I am aware that some of that power historically has not been used to in, to, to fight against climate change. I hope then, and I hope still hope now that some of it can be used to avert some of the worst impacts of climate change and to transform some systems that need to be transformed, such as the energy system, transport system. I don't think I'm naive about the goals of companies and what they're in it for and why it's taken so long. But that's just where I wanted to be, as where I wanted to have my area for play, as it were, I was talking to companies as opposed to governments, let's say. And on that note, conversations that we've had is language and storytelling, because that's something else that, you know, you're a polymath, as I said, you're a multilinguist, lots of different languages since I've met you. I'm sure you've added more. But there's also that language around climate change and making sure people don't get desensitised to it and also bringing in indigenous communities and perhaps words that don't necessarily exist in, in Western tomes, but yet have been part of other uh, languages for many, many moments. I'd love to hear more about your relationship with languages and why you play so much with words and different words and, and how that has seeped into the different uh, passions that you've been pursuing. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I was talking about voice earlier, and I think you'll have understood by now that being a philosopher, I'm not an engineer, right? So I'm, I don't have all that technical background. There are a lot of people that are working in the climate field, writ large, um, actually have. I'd say the reason I care about words is because I care about voices. The reason I care about voices is because I care about people. And so I think stories hark back to people, to individuals, but also to collectives, right? We have, we share myths, we share lots of stories, actually, that stories are something that binds us as groups. And so it's they're a really powerful way to make claims. And, and this is, again, you know, sort of the, the, the way I came to climate was looking at the different types of discourses around climate, the predominant one at the time being technical. And if we open the we broaden the aperture of what we understand as a climate claim let's say or a claim about climate change to include stories perhaps even concepts that are expressed in words from languages that aren't the dominant languages then i think we give voice to everyone who has knowledge has some experiences some impacts from the results of climate change and so yeah, I mean, I don't know if this answers your question, but I really think this idea of, you know, giving voices, having a multiplicity of voices, having a diversity of voices expressed through all these different words and languages gives us, I think, a better understanding of what's going on and arms us better to face it. The beauty of the have you thought about is sometimes you won't have an answer straight away, but you'll be thinking about it as we talk. And that's what I like about these conversations. So the fact that, you know, we're thinking about voice and who has voice and how to provide voice is giving me a have you thought about. I'm hoping, yeah, it sounds like it's giving you one as well. And <laughs> to the audience too. 
And what do you do for downtime? Like when you're not thinking or changing or creating social justice or offering, I guess, legacy to the world, when does Emily get a break? <laughs> I wish I could say that I'm always on, I'm always fighting, and I'm always, you know, thinking about how we're going to solve this. There's something interesting to me in having made this a job because uh, I used so, you know, in a, in a nutshell, my job is to help companies tell these stories about climate change in a very authentic way. And before they can tell the story, of course, I have to go and help them make sure that they are being transformational in what they're doing. And then, of course, we can help make tell that story. The, I often think about this, that, you know, having made this a job means that like everyone who's got a job, when I leave the office or leave my desk in my living room, I'm no longer at my job. And so I do things like everyone else does. I see my friends, I see my family, I have a, a young daughter, I spend time with her and I'm entertained by her endless <laughs> discoveries of words, amongst other things. I watch films, I watch reality TV, I cook, I don't cook, I, you know, everything. And But for something like climate change, which is existential, like the, you know, we will live better or worse, depending on how we collectively face climate change, and drastically worse, marginally better, but, you know, so they, and I think for a lot of us, once we start thinking or learning about what awaits in the case of inaction or insufficient action, it can create a lot of anxiety, let's say, to the succinct, even though it's very more complicated than that. It's really weird to turn off your computer and to say, all right, well, now I'm going to, you know, um, go and see a friend in the neighborhood and just chit chat about gossip and what my boss said and why my neighbors are being annoying at the moment. And did you see the traffic in my neighborhood and all that useless crap that we just talk about? And that's the sort of lubricant of social life, you know, just talking about what's around you. So that does create a bit of a disconnect. And it's a it's a weird thing. And I think a lot of you'll see a lot of people in the climate field get burnt out because turning off does not give you the R and R that you actually need. It gives you guilt, you know. Uh it gives you a feeling of uh, inadequacy, relinquishing your responsibilities. Or it can. I mean, obviously I'm generalizing, it can. So that's that's not helpful and then if you do if you don't unplug then you're just burnt out because you're overworked and that's just like in many other sectors and, and activities so it's not easy i will say that an 18 month old daughter is very entertaining also takes up a lot of your time and energy so that it keeps your mind busy and off things um so that helps wonderful and uh, just sort of a quick sort of a mini segue in terms of motherhood again how's that transformed your outlook on life you know a very simple question but yet motherhood's a, a big thing it's it seeps through everything right yes it is it's bigger than i thought it was and i but not in how can i put it not in size but in kind i don't know that's a bit of an odd metaphor but it does change everything i'll say probably the biggest thing that it's changed for me is that a child needs you to be present in life before having a child I was always thinking well I need to get this degree so I can get this other degree actually there's a lot of that happened to me I need to get this internship so I can get this job 
I need to get this boyfriend so we can, you know, do X, Y, and Z. I need to, you know, live in this city because I want to do this, that, and the other. There's always an if, then, or if, you know, if I do this, I can do that. And that's sort of vanished and evaporated a little bit. It might be a, a function of age, not sure. I don't think I still have goals and aspirations, but there's also a sense that everything right now is enough and it's what my daughter needs and i need to you know the, in parallel it's the idea also that if i'm always thinking of the future i might miss out on her you know she's here now and time goes so fast with a, a child especially at these young baby to toddler age that if you're always thinking of your next thing your next move your next job your next boss your next well not next boyfriend but you know your next this <laughs> and the other then you're just missing the present but more than anything i i do love her so infinitely that this is it i mean i don't need to think of what my next big move is in my big plan for my life i just need to chug along and, and do things now there's that and it's wonderful and new and weird to get used to because for you know 40 years i have not operated that way so that's interesting and then of course going back to climate change there's the oh my god what have i done what is this person going to suffer i know i have the knowledge i have access to the data and i am putting this person basically in harm's way <laughs> so there's a lot of times at home spent thinking about, I mean, these are jokes and also with some, I think, level of seriousness, but jokes about, what well, do we raise a survivalist? Do we teach her how to make fire and eat wood and how to forage and all this stuff rather than teach her Shakespeare? Of course, we know we need both, that actually poetry becomes something of, that you need for survival in cases of extreme conditions. I've read that. I've not experienced it, but I've read people's accounts of those experiences. So I wouldn't suggest it's just raise a forest person <laughs> who can't read. But, you know, I'm just, and this is all for jokes, but Same there time. is the question of how do we prepare her for what we think is coming, given that, you know, the odds aren't too great on that fight against climate change in our favour. So... That is very true, and that's a lot to sort of factor in. But I guess one more thing, what gives you hope? That is such a good question. There are some individuals that give me hope. They give me hope because we share outlooks, because I see their energy, I see their commitment, and I see, and I may be wrong, but what I see is that they seem hopeful. And if these brilliant people are still hopeful, then I should be hopeful. I'll, I'll put my faith in them. So there's a lot of that. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of finding your your tribe, as it were, finding your people. What else gives me hope? I don't have a very long list, Trudy. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Brilliant. Okay, I am really happy. Are you I'm I'm happy with that. Are you are you quite happy? <laughs> Oh, I'm very happy. Uh, in, I mean, uh, that's an interesting segue there. <laughs> I don't have much hope, but I have a lot of happiness, which is perhaps this connection, you know, what I was just saying about being present, you know. I have huge plans for the future. Again, I still have goals and, and aspirations, but I'm not always thinking about that next big move that's going to unlock all of these wonderful things that I don't have access to now. So perhaps that's why I can say I'm happy, but I'm not super hopeful and that was the wonderful emily pratico who brings together 
philosophy, climate change and much, much more. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you and maybe we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? and can be found via www.drutyshah.com. Please join me next time for a great conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. Thank you to Rian Shah for the music for this podcast. <laughs>